Initially, uh, some of these values that we use that help us move forward towards uh, what we believe God wants to, us to do in touching all people with God's message. And um, those values involve gathering together and serving together and learning together. And so we saw that gathering really gets redefined in this uh, book of Acts among these first followers of Jesus Christ by increase, both numerically and spiritually, as God just does this powerful work in their lives and then in the lives of many others. And then we've begun to turn towards understanding how service ends up being redefined by proximity because God came near and in a way that he had uh, not done before. So initially we looked at what that meant in Acts chapter 3 of what we can do and, and how Peter and John were so ready to serve the one right in front of them and, and do for him what they'd like to do for many, as I stole from Andy Stanley. Uh, serve the one, or serve one in, in a way that you wish you could serve many. We can do that. We can begin right there. But Jesus didn't come just to give us some good example to follow or, or leave some record of the good things that his disciples did. The second half of chapter 3 talked about what God, only God, can do, And so we considered that. You see, the world and its peoples uh, are part of God's plan. But God being made great, holy, majestic, everybody recognizing who he is, is the purpose of his plan. So we saw that serving the one is really the beginning of serving the many. So listen, this is what I told you last week, and I I want you to get this. When we really get this, that there's another reason why God came near, not just to kind of give us some good example to follow, but to lovingly deliver this hard message that it's all about Him, that God did this, period. This becomes our singular hope. Of course, in, in salvation, because then we're trusting in Him and Him alone, and that's where our faith is, and not on what we can do. We just respond to this good God who loved us but also in our service, in the ways that we work out this love for Him. Because God came near, it changes what we say. It changes what we do. And we can end up speaking to the obvious and and doing, in fact, what is very courageous. No one will do those things, the really courageous things, or speaking up and saying what's obvious, if they're not desperately seeking the one to whom they are eternally indebted because we're too fickle, we're too afraid. But the opposite is also true. When we are desperately seeking this one, when we do make it all about him and we are so eternally grateful for what he's done, people do remarkable things and people will say remarkable things at the right time and in the right place. And that's really what... Acts chapter 4 is about, and I'd like us to look at that over these next two weeks. Today, a little bit about what they ended up saying, speaking to the obvious. Now, we need to have a little history lesson, and I've been uh, thoroughly enjoyed this study this week of the first verses and their significance um, of of this uh, Acts chapter 4. It says the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people and they were greatly disturbed because of the apostles' teaching 
the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, rulers, elders, teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Now, you've got to understand the players in the situation for us to, to understand the significance of what Peter does in this situation. We have the Sadducees and the captain of the guard. We have rulers, elders, and teachers of the law. And then we have Annas, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander. Okay, now... Let me take these apart. Why in the world all these very specific names and who are these people? First of all, the Sadducees. They were a political aristocracy. More than they were actually any kind of religious leadership. They had come to power. And now, we often, um, because we date our calendars with the beginning of Christ's life now, uh, find ourselves 213... Uh, two, 2013 years after that. We kind of think that was the beginning of time. When Jesus came, when the Holy Spirit came, he walked into an historical setting. It wasn't a vacuum. It didn't all just start then. And this is very true in this situation with these Sadducees. Through a long history of um, political work they had done over hundreds of years through different coups and coercions and political risings and fallings, and now a gamesmanship with the controlling Romans, they had come into power. Because of their place of power, they controlled who the chief priest was, this Annas in the picture, and then later Caiaphas, so I'll get to that in a second. He, by default, this high priest, who was determined by the Sadducees who were in power, this political group, um, he was the president of the Sanhedrin. That's another group that's here. And uh, they were a kind of political senate that was able to rule under the careful watch of the Romans and Herod in particular. They had a certain amount of power over the people of Israel. And then we have the captain of the guard. Sounds just like, um, you know, kind of the head mall cop or something. But that's not what he was. He actually was second in rank only to the high priest. And so these two men were very powerful in this political situation and, and, and setting that we find ourselves in. Then we have the rulers, elders, teachers of the law. It's synonymous with the Sanhedrin that shows in verse 15. If you go there, you'll see that, uh, that it's synonymous. And we're going to see them show up a number of times in these chapters to come. That will become very important. Most of these were Sadducees, the minority political power. Um, but not all. The other, the rest of the group, were made up of Pharisees. You've probably heard more about them. Jesus speaks to them more in the New Testament. They were more of a religious nature, and they represented the large majority of the common man. They had a minority on the Sanhedrin, this ruling senate, but they had a lot of influence because they represented the populace as a whole. And so there was a certain amount of check and balance that was in this uh, very tense political situation trying to control the people. Now, then you have Annas, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander. This Sadducee thing, this minority political group that had most of the power, was family-run. 
Annas was the high priest now. He was responsible for seven other high priests after him. Five of them were his own sons. One was a son-in-law and one was a grandson. You beginning to smell what I smell here? So we have the Sadducees, a minority, predominantly controlling and ruled by, controlling the people and ruled by a particular family. Just below them, there's the captain and the guard. They're kind of the muscle in the situation. And, of course, in the crucifixion of Jesus, you'll remember that there were the guards that arrested Jesus were the temple guard. Later, they were t- turned over to the Roman guards. But these, these are the muscle boys. And then they rule through this Sanhedrin, this political senate, that they had to manipulate. They had a majority in, but they had to deal with the Pharisees who represented the majority of the people. So the summary here is we have a few in power with political and financial interests. They are unscrupulous with a veneer of religiosity. They're known as mean and rigid and protective of their political and financial interests that they have stored up and developed and and are trying to maintain over hundreds of years. They're politically savvy, and they're playing a game between the populace, represented by the Pharisees, and and Rome itself. They are rich, they are informed, they are powerful, they are intelligent, and they are ruthless. Now, no wonder these disciples were afraid of these people (laughs) pre-cross. Because these guys would just wipe you out. They didn't have some kind of moral fiber that was driving them. It was political and it was financial. It's also remarkable that then they become, Peter and John, so courageous after the cross. It's a remarkable setting. Now, I don't know if you see what I see, but this seems to be a kind of Jewish mafia. Think about it. A few in power, unscrupulous, a veneer of religiosity. I'm not going to you know, ask for a raise of hands, but you know, many of you have seen The Godfather, you know, and the whole religious thing. And, you know, just saying, politically savvy, they're playing this game. Rich, informed, powerful, intelligent, ruthless. Now, I'm not sure there's any significance to this or not, but I seem to have spent the majority of my life living in places that are dominated by organized crime. Grew up in Chicago. Now, when I said that in Italy, most of the time, the Italians would look at me and go, Oh, Al Capone! They did. All the time, they still think it's like that. You know, they want to go to Chicago and see Al Capone, you know? Wow. Then God moves me to Brooklyn. I've got some stories. I can't tell them. I don't. I wish I could. You can talk to me afterwards. I have some stories about organized crime right in our neighborhood. It was fascinating. Of course, I lived in Italy. They have a certain reputation with organized crime. And now I find myself in New Jersey. Just saying. I don't know there's any real connection here. But it got me thinking, really, as I reflected on the situation. What better person to deal with a situation like this than a guy from New Jersey. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about Peter. Peter was from New Jersey. And I'm going to show you why I believe that's true. Now, what do I mean that he was from New Jersey? Okay, I went to college in the South. I, I still feel, I think very, very highly of that school. I encourage people to go. If you want to go to a good college, prepare you for ministry, talk to me. I'll try and sell you on it. It's a great place. And I I look back on that with great appreciation for all that it did in shaping me as a person, not only preparing me for ministry, but um, it's in the South. 
Um, I used to argue it's like a northern school in southern country, uh, I, but they didn't like that. Um, I, I don't know what it is about the South. This is all my apologies to southern people, okay, because it's my fault. I made more cultural blunders in the South than I think I did living overseas. I just don't get the southern culture. I don't understand it. I, I made lots of mistakes. There's some way of communicating that I didn't understand. And so um, I literally said to God out loud, I was by myself, and I said to him, I, I, I told you I'll go anywhere, I, 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 and I will. But if you know what's good for you, <laughs> don't send me here. And so he sends me to Brooklyn, New York. Nice. Score. What's the difference? These people are in your face. They tell you exactly where they stand. I can get it. Because I'm like simple. I didn't get the other complicated way of communicating. These guys tell you right where it's... Aren't we famous for that in the Northeast? We're just kind of right there, you know. And even if you're not from the Northeast, you learn to adapt to it. Right? We're really sarcastic. You know, little Katie Hooks, our missionary that works with uh, Reach Global, um, she was here and she's from the South and she loves the guys here because we've gone down there, as Ellen referred to, and done a bunch of work down there. And, and she's up here helping getting some things going in uh, Staten Island now. And, and my wife ran into her. She was hanging around here for a week and my wife ran into her and she said, uh, So, Katie, how's it going? And she said, Oh, it's, it's good. It's great. She's all bubbly and happy. She's always positive. And, but Donna's like, You know, so, you know, it, it, all right. She kind of goes, Um, She's from North Carolina. So, um, is everybody sarcastic? Uh, and, and that's like a love language around here, we call it. In fact, the staff told me this week, um, your major job is to absorb the sarcasm. That's, that's where we are, right? We're like in people's... Check out that Peter was like, like this. Now, this is specific to the situation. Look what he says in verse 20. We cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Let's say what's obvious, okay? You know, let's just... I think it was like this. Now, there's a few things that I've... I hear in this passage that I've learned, okay? Of course, I'm not from New Jersey, but I'm... You know, I've learned a few things. Like, and I've told you this one. You know, let me be honest with you. Right? We, We say that a lot. As if everything else you've ever said was a lie, right? It's... Let me be honest with you. Well, that's not what you mean, is it? It doesn't mean like I've been lying before. It's, it means this might be hard for you to believe. But it's just a mechanism. As a matter of fact, Jesus used it. Verily, verily. Actually, has that inference, that sense. When he said verily, verily, you're not going to believe this, but this is really, really true. So, so we do that. And let me be honest with you, you know. Then we say another one. You know, you know... I've learned, and I'm always, you know, know what? Well, the point is this. You kind of don't know, and I'm about to give you the appropriate correction. That's what that means, for those of you who are not from New Jersey. Someone goes, you know, that's what they mean. There is no way. You know what that means? There is no way. <laughs> it kind of means you got that wrong, Right? And then there's another one. I don't care what you say. I, and then they fill it all in. And that basically means I'm, I, you know, I'm just letting you know what I'm doing, just saying. You know, so you can do whatever you want. I'm doing this. And I see this in the passage, right? Um, now, it's, it's real dangerous to take such a hostile setting and try and apply it too much to our day-to-day situation, which is quite as hostile, likely, 
Um, but it's also true that sometimes we can offer real clarity in situations if we can cut through some of the confusion. And we have a real opportunity to do that in this particular culture where we can speak so frankly. Um, so let me show you. I, I think there's a few things here. Verses 8 to 10 is kind of the, let me be honest with you here. You know, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to the rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. So now let me be honest with you. This is the third time. He says this, you crucified this Christ. And the first time he stood up and praised, this Christ, you crucified. And then last time we saw, you are the author, or you killed the author of life. And now for a third time he says, you crucified. So I know it's going to be hard for you to hear, but (laughs) let me be honest with you. You really need to get this. And, And so he's really going after this personal responsibility they have, which all of us have to grapple with, right? This fact that we are complicit, whether we like it or not, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because your sins were placed on Him. Right? So, so let me be honest with you. <laughs> you got you to get that. And then there's kind of a, you know, <laughs> in verse 11. You... you You don't really know, and I want to make the appropriate correction here. Did you know, you know, verse 11, He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Now, um, I I find this fascinating, and it's my second proof that Peter was from New Jersey, because that's a quote from Psalm 118, and and, and if you know the Bible, I mean, that's a very classic verse. We, We see it. Over and over again, I'll come to that in a second. It's familiar. It's so familiar that a man with a doctorate in ministry in the first service read this passage and he read it exactly the way it's listed in Psalm 118. Which is, go back to the verse, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But that's not what Peter said. The stone use rejected. You see what he did? He, he, he threw in the you. And they were literally complicit. So this situation's charged, right? Because these guys were the ones that led the mob to crucify Christ. But man, look how direct he is. You did this. And he's going to make sure they know that. Um, this is a theme for Peter, this cornerstone, this rock thing. He picks it up in his epistle. Of course, he wrote First and Second Peter. And in First Peter, he's going to come back to this and he expands on it. And I don't have time, but you can go and read it and you'll see how he takes this Psalm 118 thing. And he expands on it. Now, why is this a theme for him? Because Matthew chapter 16 is an occasion when Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And some of them said, you know, Elijah, the prophets. And then he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter was the one who piped up and said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. To which Jesus said, heaven revealed that to Peter, uh, to you, Peter. You, You didn't figure that out. But on this rock, I will build my church. And from the time that 
you know, was written down and disseminated through the church, we've been fighting over what exactly Jesus meant. Did he mean Peter was going to be the cornerstone on which this church was built? Or was it going to be the Christ, the confessions, son of the living God? What I find interesting is that Peter repeatedly says, this ain't about me. He is the cornerstone. So if you want to argue that that was Peter and kind of follow apostolic succession, it's an interesting conversation to take that thought to Peter and say, Peter, who do you think Jesus was referring to? Because at least two times in Scripture he says, this isn't me. I want you to get this. Let me be honest with you. You know, this Christ is the one this church is built upon. He makes it about Jesus. And, and that's the application. We may, may not be in situations where we're supposed to be, you know, wagging our finger in somebody's face going, you know you nailed those things right into his hands, you know. I, because they haven't. They weren't there physically. But how much do we make our conversations about Jesus? How quickly are we turning to that? Do we make him a part of our conversations and what he's done for us and and what what change he's brought in our lives do we as controversial as this may be a familiarity that you have with jesus christ can actually be compelling i don't think i was a great witness for jesus christ in my high school i was kind of big man on campus at my church but i'm not sure i made the impact that i should have i've always felt like i should have been better at that what i will say though is i returned when i was uh when uh, we had our 20th reunion and um i I don't like those things but i happened to be in the area and a friend of mine was going and i figured by 20 years you're stopped strutting and you know by that time we're all fat and everything so we can just go and be ourselves you know i had a few people come up to me and say Weren't you supposed to become a missionary or something? I was really surprised by that. But apparently there was just enough of a familiarity with this Jesus thing in my life that people knew that I was going to go do something wacky like that. And I, and I did. And somehow something came through that was enough about Jesus that they saw that I would do something with my life that had something to do with that. It's just trying to make it about him. And then in verse 12, he says this next thing. There's no way but this way. Verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There's nothing more controversial than this. Of course, it stems from John chapter 14 when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The most controversial words that Jesus ever uttered. It, it, it just immediately dismisses the whole great teacher thing. He couldn't have been just a great teacher. He was either, as C.S. Lewis says, a liar, a blatant liar, or a deluded madman, or he was exactly who he said he was. Those are the options, because this is what he claimed. He left no doubt as to who he claimed to be, and he claimed to be the only way. There's nothing more controversial than that. And yes, it can create offense and cause people to say, I want no part of a God like that. The problem is, well, actually the positive side of it is, if that's really true, there's also nothing more comforting than that is there 
when there is but one way. And when God, in all of his complexity and brilliance, has simplified his message to us so much that it is expressed perfectly in one person and one response to that sufficient work, it's incredibly comforting. Really, really simple people like me can get it and they can respond to it. And that becomes our goal, doesn't it? To try and take the complexity and the confusion of the world that we live in and try and make it as simple as possible. And it can come down to an offense. You know, this either messes with your mind and how can that possibly be that God would do it that way? And so research with us, talk with us, we'll, we'll, we'll work through that and show you how it does make sense, it is reasonable. But it also offers answers like never before because we know where to go. Now, can you make what you're about that clarifying instead of antagonizing? Can you offer an answer in the middle of this mess? If there's anything that those around you that are searching for truth and answers have in common, is it not confusion? Have they got it figured out? That's what everybody agrees. That's why we're so you know, uh, tolerant and, and everything of everybody else because everybody's willing to say, I don't get it, you know. But there can be clarity brought into situations because of the simplicity of the message. And, you know, we often whine and complain that we live in the Northeast and churches are never as big here and people don't respond here and you look in other places and there's big churches, all these different things going on. We have a tremendous advantage in the fact that we have a permission in our culture to speak directly. As long as we add, just saying, at the end. Right? Do you make it clear? As simple as you can so that somebody can think about that? Because if you do, then the last thing becomes really important that he says in verses 19 and 20. I don't care what you say, so 19 and 20. Well, go to 18. Then they called him in again and commanded him, don't speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Yeah, right. Like, that's going to work. I'm, I'm making everything about Jesus. So Peter says... You judge for yourselves whether it's right or not. Right? I don't care what you say. I, <laughs> we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. I don't care what you say. I'm doing this. Now, here's the deal. There's bold obedience. But it's in the context of this proximity and this relationship and this time. He's saying this, not in the first message that he gave, but after days and days of being in Solomon's colonnade, speaking with these people and them gathering in houses and developing relationships with them and spending time with them and living out an example that can be followed. So it's not so much about accosting people and beating them over the head as it is making a clear message and then having a life that clearly lives the example that people can follow. He's saying one thing, and saying something is one thing, and that can be compelling, but living that kind of example in front of other people that actually know you and can see you and spend time with you, that's really compelling. Do you make things clear by what you do? Or do you say one thing and then, you know, behave another way? And of course, we all get thrown under the bus for that. world's a bunch of hypocrites, Christians, you believe this, you know, and then you say, I mean, you actually do that. Well, how much are we trying to make our message and our behavior, you know, a beautiful 
whole. That's called integrity. That what I say is also what I do. What I believe is also how I behave. Can it be seen in your way? The way you live. And there's tremendous fruit that comes out of this honesty. That's what verse 4 tells us. You know, these guys, grabbed by these guys, thrown into prison. They get, you know, interrogated now. They're going to get beaten later. And verse 4, you know, shows us that many heard who heard the message believed. And the number of men grew to be about 5,000. There's tremendous response that can come when people honestly live what they believe and clearly state what is simply true, speaking the obvious. Now again, we're learning from history. This situation is charged with lots of background, some assumed knowledge, informed people that were actually complicit in crucifying Jesus. I, I, I recognize that Peter is probably a little more caustic than most of us are called to be. However, there's nothing like a little clarity to help people who are confused. Pointing out the obvious, specific facts and prophecies that corroborate and determinative factors in it, but also an example to follow, you know, that we show the way, that we really put up, that we do what we say, that we practice what we preach, that we follow through, that we're genuine and sincere, all of the, all of the isms that we say. Serve is redefined by proximity. So say what is obvious. Because God came near, it changes. It changes what we do and what we say. Now we've got to work on the proximity thing as we do so. Because honesty and directness is good when it's for another person that we know and we care about. It's really bad when it's just at another person that we don't know and we don't care about. But when we do know and care... We back it up with a relationship and an example and the clarity of our words can be powerful and the simplicity of our message and our actions can be very compelling. Henry Nouwen says this, when we are securely rooted in personal intimacy with the source of life, that I was saying last week, right? It's all about Him, you know? And when we make it about Him, when, when, when we are desperately seeking Him, securely rooted in personal intimacy with the source of life, it will be possible to remain flexible without being relativistic, convinced without being rigid, willing to confront without being offensive, gentle and forgiving without being soft, and true witnesses without being manipulative. It's possible. If we'll say what's obvious... And we'll back it up with a life that's just as obvious. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the perfect example of consistency. Practicing what we preach in Jesus Christ. And, and then by sending your Holy Spirit who in filling us and gifting us and using us and dwelling us can do remarkable things just like Jesus did in very weak examples like Peter and John who just before had, had been so afraid now they're so bold so clear so simple 
And, and we, we want to be that way. Would you help us to say what's obvious, to back it up with the way we live, to help cut through the confusion in lives around us by offering the only way that you might receive the glory and that truly more and more people would come into your kingdom. In Jesus' name.